everything we do, whether it's prevention, education, treatment, it's about the substance. It's about the substance. It's about the substance. It has nothing to do with the substance, right? Yeah. But it's our attitudes towards these substances and because you're using this substance or you use that substance that makes you this kind of human being that we don't value or don't like or criminalize, right? And that's, for lack of a better you know, term, it's bullshit. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder, harm reduction, and recovery from addiction. Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. I'm Sean Fogler. And I'm Bill Kinkle. And today we're going to have a bit of an off-the-cuff discussion on relapse and recognizing it and discuss a little bit about Bill's experience um, recently. Yeah, we figured that, you know, you go to treatment and one of the most painful groups that you have to sit through repeatedly over and over again is relapse prevention. And I always found most of the things that they spoke about, I just thought it was really abstract and it wasn't realistic. I mean, they would talk a lot about triggers and you would hear things like people, places and things. And it's really hard in life to avoid all those things. And a lot of times they would talk about like these little strategies that you could implement, right? When you're having a craving or an obsessive thought. And they never seemed to work for me. I mean, like one suggestion was to put a, keep a Band-Aid around your wrist. And when you're having those thoughts, snap the Band-Aid to interrupt the thought. And I remember many times driving down to buy drugs, snapping like crazy, hoping it would work. And I just never found a lot of those strategies to be very helpful for me. Yeah, I, re- I remember being in treatment and them drawing this picture of trigger, thought, craving, use, and talking about strategies to interrupt it. And um, I don't know, I think sometimes, like, in fact, most of the time, you don't really have the insight, and it's a slow, kind of progressive thing that happens right they always talk about how a relapse happens long before um, the use actually happens you know frequently many months before Um, and so it's and and when it's slow like that it's very hard to recognize um, and you know what's going on with yourself and I I think it highlights the importance of having strong connections and listening to the people around you Um, at least I've found personally um, yeah, and I have too. And I think that's sort of why I thought it'd be fun to talk about this because, uh, in my own life very recently, like I'm actually on the downside right now of fighting off a relapse and everything that happened, I didn't really see it coming from a traditional standpoint of, uh, you know, what we would think about leading up to a relapse. Um, the thoughts that I had weren't, I didn't really notice them. Uh, other people around me did, but it was it like, like you just said, it was such a slow, progressive thing, and it was influenced by so many other factors that I think 
what fuels or kind of what the anatomy of a relapse is um, is a lot more complex than we've ever really talked about or thought about before. And so I think it'd be fun to just kind of break down my experience over the past month and a half or so and just how, just really how things built up. And it could have been catastrophic for me had certain things not been into place and had I not been able to learn from past experiences where I relapsed and for me looking back and really analyzing critically what happened at those times that I started to use again after long periods of sobriety, um, what, what led to that. And I think I've done a lot of work trying to figure that out, but I never, all the plans that I put into place based on what I've learned before about myself, I never had to, I never had to deploy that before until recently to see how, it, would it work? You know, would I be able to prevent, <coughs> you know, would I be able to prevent uh, using again if things, um, you know, if the pressures and the stress built up to the level of the break, of a breaking point for me? And so I think that's sort of why we were going to talk today. Yeah, I, th- I, I also think like that highlights another big point is that, you know, get it, having some time like um, in sobriety um, can be very valuable because it takes time to gain that insight and to gather the tools needed um, when something like this creeps up on you because it really is, um, I'm trying to think of the word, it really, I, I can't think of the word, but um, it, it's just, it's so subtle. It's, you know, yeah. even and even if you do recognize it, you probably don't recognize how, you know, how critical it is. Um, even like small behaviors or, you know, I know for me, like how I react with my kids, if I get frustrated more easily um, or angry more easily. Um, and that goes with any relationship around me. But it's like you need people to point it out and you also need to listen, right? And a lot of times it's like really hard. You don't want to listen. Yeah. Um, you're not interested in what anybody says. But but frequently, you know, having those eyes on you gives you better insight into yourself, especially early on in recovery because it takes time. And I always say like, I mean, part of recovery is like creating space, you know, um, and the space gets larger in terms of like, you're dealing with something in the world and initially you just have a reflexive action. Um, but over time, you know, you think about that for a few seconds and maybe that few seconds turns into, you know, 20 seconds and turns into a minute and turns into five minutes. And finally, you know, something happens around you and you think about, oh, well, this is how I'm feeling and this is how I want to react, but I know that that's not going to be healthy. And, you know, it's like creating space, right? And um, I hate like counting time and I don't, you know, I think it's problematic to say, oh, I have X amount of days. Um, but I do think it does take time to really develop these skills and these strategies and, and the willingness to listen because I think most of the time I am, but frequently when I'm like at my worst, I don't want to listen to anybody, right? I'm very hard-headed. Um, though I always thought I was easygoing, but I guess that's not exactly the case. <laughs> You're a lot more easygoing than I am. That's for yeah, sure. maybe. You're I Canadian, don't know. So. Yeah, no, true. Um, but it's a it's a process, and it is not easy at all. Um, 
And I know, Bill, you're going to talk a bit about like, you know, your work experience, because work can be one of the most triggering and challenging, you know, um, places to be, you know, in dealing with things like that. Yeah. And what I think, I think a lot of what we do in our like relapse prevention, um, at least the official relapse prevention, it's so superficial uh, and so impractical and so generalized um, that it, for me, that it it was really impractical uh, in in use. So for instance, the environment that I worked in and this job that I had, um, I guess I have to explain a little bit of what the job was and how uh, it worked um, and the, the role that I was in. But it would it this role violates some of the core principles of relapse prevention. So I was in a role, <clears throat> I was in a role where I worked with um, active drug users, uh, and part of my role was sitting with them every day as they were actively using, uh, in a harm reduction uh, supportive role, uh, trying to help them with just they were people that were freshly housed after being homeless for a long period of time. And the particular folks that I worked with were injection drug users. And so a lot of it was harm reduction. A lot of it was just really helping them to use safer, uh, a lot of overdose prevention and uh, safer injection practices to keep them safe, uh, more, you know, from a public health standpoint. And so for someone who's in recovery for, as an injection drug user, an injection opioid user, uh, if I was in treatment and said, that's the job I wanted to go into, I would be highly discouraged from that because that would be seen as you're going right back into the most triggering environment. And yet when I was in that role, uh, the sense that I had and the feeling of satisfaction for me personally, that job for me felt like what I was born to do. Uh, I went to work and I loved everything that I got to do. I loved spending time with the people I got to spend time with. Um, I loved just learning about like just teaching them better ways to inject cleaner practices, ways to keep them from getting infections, uh, being there if they overdosed and being able to reverse it. Because what I found is these conversations would just develop from that safe space and a non-judgmental space. The people really started to talk honestly about what they wanted out of life. And the way that I've defined my own... <clears throat> The way, I, the way that I've defined my own recovery and that I think about recovery has a lot to do with am I happy in my life and do I have purpose in my life? I think those are the things that we should look at for recovery. You know, what is it that we can help a person do so that they feel satisfied and have purpose in their life? And when I was with people, even in the midst of them actively using, those were, those were most often where the conversations went of this really isn't what I want to do, but I'm not even sure what I want to do. And so for me, it was so incredibly satisfying to be in that job. But back to the relapse prevention, that should have triggered me, right? Like I should have been sitting across from someone who is fixing and injecting a bag of dope. That should have been a trigger for me, but it wasn't. I never had one urge to use through that. And I think that's because the, the underlying thing that was going on in my life is that I was so happy and content because I felt that's what my that was the purpose of my life is to help people through this this event. But then what happened was so I was in a role with this um, organization that I worked in, and they had it's kind of split the people that they house after being homeless. There's um, 
several teams of people that work primarily with folks who are suffering with um, pretty high level mental illness. And then there's other teams that work with injection drug users. And I floated between teams, but I had been on the injection drug user team for about four or five months. Um, so I developed some really intense personal relationships with people on that team and really worked closely with them. Um, but then because of needs in the organization, I was transferred to one of the mental health teams where I have no background uh, in that. I felt really uncomfortable um, and I just felt really unsatisfied. I mean, part of it was because of the separation from people that I cared about personally as human beings, but I felt like that was my purpose in life was to do that job. And now being taken over to another area where I felt very unsatisfied um, and unequipped and just really unqualified to be doing that job, I started to notice that my mental health started to disintegrate pretty pretty quickly. I became uh, depressed and really yeah, just unsatisfied with the job. And so over time, you know, my wife is the one who started to pick up on things, like you talked about earlier, that, you know, I was a little bit, um, you know, more impatient than usual with the kids. I was waking up all hours of the night with a lot of anxiety and just was really off. And she was noticing that my mental health was disintegrating. And I noticed a little bit, but not to the degree that I should have. It wasn't until much later that I started realizing that I would have these, that I was actively starting to think about using drugs again. Um, but not, it wasn't in the typical way that we think about cravings. I didn't have a crave to use, but what I found is that I became, I was depressed. I became very sad and I just wanted that sadness. I would, what I, what I would often think about is like, boy, I, I would like to just use something to take the edge off. So when I go home at night, I'm not feeling so miserable that I could, even synthetically, because drugs are really good at that, particularly opioids. You, know, you pop a Percocet, you're going to feel pretty good. Uh, you're going to be synthetically happy. And I got to the point that I was almost willing to exchange the consequences and the risk of developing an opioid use disorder all over again and start to exhibiting, exhibit signs of an opioid use disorder because I was so unhappy all the time and I just wanted to feel better. But it was interesting that I couldn't couldn't really talk to Trish, my wife, about it because I had to go to work every day in an area where drugs are readily available and I didn't want her to be concerned. Um, so I did talk to you, like, incrementally, like, even talking to you. Like, do you remember that? Like, Yeah. Oh. No, I, I do. I mean, you just brought up so many important po points. I mean, the first is drugs serve a purpose, right? And people use drugs for good reasons most of the time and frequently it's to manage emotional or physical pain um and when you strip that away from somebody you know there better be some other strategy um to address that right and frequently we want to say you know don't do anything and you know the fact that your abstinence means you're healthy not exactly it doesn't work no. that way um the other thing is is meaning and purpose like having a mean like Yes, we want less overdose deaths and we don't want people to die, but I always say that's such a narrow measure of success. Like it's not, you know, recovery isn't about survival. It's about thriving and having meaning and purpose is one of the most crucial things um, to a healthy recovery. 
it's necessary. Uh, maybe one of the most important things, and we were talking earlier about, you know, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he spent time um, in a concentration camp. Um, and, you know, he, there's that famous line, he who has a why can bear any how. Um, and, and it's a mindset thing. You know, if you don't have a purpose and a meaning in life, how are you supposed to survive? How are you supposed to, you know, do all the things that are necessary in recovery? And, you know, whether you're in a treatment center or you're in drug court, um, there is no way. And that's why the success rates are abysmal. They're awful um, because it's much, much more. And we're not addressing that. We're like, okay, let's give out more naloxone. Let's give out more MAT. And that's good stuff that needs to happen. And that helps. But it's not enough. It's not even close to enough. Um, it's, you know, it's a much bigger issue. And, it, and it, we need to focus on that meaning and purpose. Because um, everybody needs that to live, you know, a healthy, connected life. Um, and, and it's their life. You know, it's their life. Um, and, you know, for us to tell them they need to do this to be valued um, and to deserve life is ridiculous right and if we're talking about harm reduction that is not a harm reduction attitude right like you know many organizations claiming that they're all about harm reduction but it's harm reduction if you do a b c d e f g you know and this too and if you don't you're out and that's not how it works right that's yeah. just not how it works no not at all i just think we focused <clears throat> i just think for years we've been focused on the wrong thing like when we talk about the drug, like everything seems to be so focused on the drug and what can you do to avoid using the drug? And like once again for me, one, I didn't see it coming, that it just came in such a weird <clears throat> way uh, that I just, I just didn't realize what was happening, that I was starting to feel more and more lousy. But it, a lot of it had, a lot of it was sitting with people and like you just said, we, we do all these different things, but if you, unless you give someone meaning in their life and purpose, it doesn't really make a difference. And so I was working in this area where we housed people, and I really quickly started to realize that, yeah, housing is a human right. Everyone should be housed. But I, it became so apparent that it's not enough. Like now these people are isolated in these homes, and the conversations revolved heavily around, I just want to find out what I'm supposed to do, and I want to have something that is of value to humanity. And so it was fascinating that I was working with people who suffered with the same thing as, and then all of a sudden I'm in this place of what I do every day, I don't feel has value, and or at least it has value, but it wasn't. I didn't have the sense of this is what I should be doing with my life. Like it was amazing to me how such a tiny shift in what I did at work and the population that I worked with had such massive effects on me, my mental health, how it impacted my family, how it impacted my productivity and my personal life and advocacy life, my friendship with you. All these things changed because of such a subtle thing. And so I learned a lot from that. Um, because I've analyzed a ton because in my own personal life, I had this fall into deep addiction at 34, three, three and a half years of, of pretty severe addiction, uh, five years of recovery, then a relapse for a couple of years. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at what happened at in between that five year 
period of recovery and when I picked up using again. And that's sort of how Trish and I kind of developed the the safety, quote-unquote, relapse prevention plan for myself was, okay, clearly it was, uh, I didn't feel connected at work back then. So I was part of this, I worked for a church, but I didn't feel like I was really part of it. I didn't feel like I was part of the team, um, and I didn't feel like I was accepted as a member of the team. Uh, I didn't really like the work that I was doing. I didn't really feel like it served. I didn't feel like that's what I should be doing with my life. And that led to heavy depression, which took a long time um, to slowly build before I picked up to the point that I don't even remember the day that I picked up using drugs again. It just sort of happened. But from that is where we sort of developed this idea of like, okay, depression clearly was a trigger for me at these two points. But this past period, last week, was Trisha and I were talking about it, and I realized I don't really have the capacity to look at myself objectively enough to know that these things are happening. But she did. And I think this also brings up the benefit of, um, I mean, having a spouse, like being a person in recovery who has a spouse who's very well aware of what's going on. And the only reason that she was so aware is because of the level of my transparency with her in the past of trying to realize these are the things that lead to me not feeling satisfied in my life. And for me, for whatever reason, it matters. Uh, I'm not some guy that's going to do well with a, a Monday 9 to 5. Uh, I envy the people that can do that for 40 years and then retire. I can't. My life has to have some kind of purpose in the work that I do. Um, I want it to have some type of lasting impression on humanity to make it better. Uh, and if I'm not doing that, then I don't do well personally. And so it was fascinating to me. Just this whole thing has been fascinating to me, looking yeah. at that we, we, we created this recovery plan that actually worked. Mm-hmm. It didn't work the way that I intended it to. And that's why this stuff can't be cookie cutter, right? Because yeah. there's, there's usually a pattern. Like I know no matter what happens, if I, you know, my thinking shifts and I start thinking a certain way and acting a certain way, that I'm headed down that road, but I really need somebody on the outside and every you know recovery or relapse prevention plan is unique i mean it's just like recovery no cookie cutter you know i go to four meetings a week i go to my therapist once a week you know i read you know morning meditations like that's all good stuff but like like just prescribing that is like that's the prescription for everybody who struggles with substances or process addictions is ridiculous. <laughs> it doesn't work because, and even in recovery, it changes over time. What worked for me on day one doesn't necessarily work for me now, you know, and what worked for me, you know, a year ago, it, it's different, right? Like, um, and sometimes exercise is part of that or yoga or meditation or hanging out with my friends or, you know, I mean, there's so many different, um, ways to recover and strategies um and and just like with a relapse plan the same stuff is not necessarily going to work right like what worked today you know didn't necessarily work yesterday or won't necessarily work tomorrow so like this stuff's all fluid i mean we want to we want to put it into some kind of algorithm and plug everybody into it but like it doesn't work and the and the other thing that I find really interesting is as a healthcare professional, it's not like you can call up your monitoring organization, which is a monitoring organization that says they're about health and wellness, 
um, and pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm struggling. I feel like I'm going to use drugs again because the repercussions of that, like the consequences, it could be catastrophic. You may be signing another agreement. You may go for another assessment. You may end up in rehab for another 90 days. Maybe you need it. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Um, are they expert? They're the, are they the experts? They claim to be the experts. Some are very good. Some places are straight up dangerous. So I, I, you know, it goes back to the whole culture of silence. Shut up, grate your teeth, do your best. But that doesn't work very well. And frequently people die because of that, right? And we should be able to call up, you know, our, our monitoring agency or our health professionals, um, you know, organization that's supposed to be about health and wellness for healthcare providers and speak openly or send a letter and actually get a response. You know, this is how I'm feeling. I'm uncomfortable with this, you know, and frequently you just, you know, keep doing more, you know, um, come on in. We'll, you know, have you talk to the psychiatrist again. That's not always helpful. You know, frequently it's not. And it's, I mean, frequently it's dangerous, you know, yeah. on, on the other side. Um, and so, like, it's, it's really tricky. You know, the fact that we're even here speaking about this openly like this, you know, can be problematic, you know, when, when it actually, you know, goes live and, and somebody listens to it, you know, from the monitoring board. Um, it's, uh, and we shouldn't feel that way. We right. should be allowed to speak about, you know, our mental health or, you know, issues openly and honestly without fear of retribution. Um, you know, and this goes back to, you know, Leah Boletsky and Sarah Wakeman's article about, you know, healthcare provider exceptionalism mm -hmm. and you can't have MAT if you're a healthcare provider. It's, it's ridiculous and absurd. And like, that's just one small, um, not small. I mean, it's a big thing, but it's, it's just an example of this same kind of attitude right that's pervasive within the the medical community and it's it's ridiculous and it's harmful yeah i totally agree i mean i hadn't even considered that aspect of this of you know this going live and the monitoring program imposing you know more requirements on me uh because i don't know if we want to go down this <laughs> this, this, this discussion. may as well but, it doesn't have to be uh we don't need to put it out there right but no but i mean just so over the past two years everything that i've done with them none of the requirements of that program would have given me any tools to deal with this one nothing that i have done requirements of the board of nursing would have given me the insight to see this coming and to develop the plan that i did all that was work that i did on my own on the side um, through spending a considerable amount of time going through all the emotions, going through past journals, past um, emails, looking at my the way that I was writing back and back then over over different periods of time, and looking at patterns of thought and realize looking at the, the subtleties and clearly I was thinking different by the way that I was writing emails and different things, and by analyzing that stuff about and learning more about myself through all this introspective work is how I developed this plan. And this goes back to why we talk all the time about tailored recovery plans, why every person's recovery needs to be tailored specifically for them. And if we're really about quote unquote success rates, whatever success means, but if we're really about giving someone the best life they can possibly have in recovery to them to find personal wellness 
and a personal sense of satisfaction and purpose in their life. We've got to look at them as individuals and not cookie cut anything. And that's what happened here. The only reason that that right now I'm either not in my bathroom shooting a bag of heroin or dead somewhere because I overdosed. The only reason that happened is because of the work that my wife and I and my friends that we've all done um, to really understand myself better. And so what would have been most helpful for the past two years instead of spending three plus three to four hours a week going to 12-step meetings is having had, if I would have had the opportunity to work with a therapist who could have from a professional standpoint, because all the work that I've done has been unprofessional. It's been myself trying to look at myself as objectively as possible, which is, that's impossible at times. But it would have been so much more useful to have a professional work with me over all these things that I pulled out about myself, because I'm sure there's blind spots. Maybe I could have seen this sooner. Maybe it didn't need to get to this point, because ultimately the decision that I made to protect my recovery is I quit my job because I wasn't going to be moved back to the team that I felt like I had the most impact on, the one that gave the team that gave me purpose. I was going to be kept on these other teams pretty much indefinitely, and that destroyed me. And so through a lot of a lot of pain, Trisha and I had to decide that the best thing for me to do two weeks before Christmas was to quit my job and to find a new job, because that the safety of our family and the safety of my recovery is paramount in our lives. And I think a lot of times that's something else that we don't talk about is that the decisions that we have to make to protect our recovery are not as simple as we want to make them sound. Quitting my job two weeks before Christmas, being the father of three, four and five year old age children is not an easy decision to make. And so we shouldn't make it seem like it's just such an easy thing to do. Because these are these are the complex things. These are the this is the muddy water that we live in as people in recovery, right? Mm-hmm. These are the decisions that we have to make that are just so not as simple as they sound in, in yeah. treatment. And should you really have to make that choice, right? The safety and security of employment and providing for your family, or your recovery, right? Um, and the fact is you were moved from an area of work where you had meaning and purpose and were excited about to an area you weren't. And even though you verbalized that, you know, you weren't given that option. So it was like, do I, you know, do I survive and protect my recovery or do I continue here for the safety and security, you know, of this job, which is, and like those choices, you shouldn't have to make those choices. Those choices are, uh, they're just, you know, they're ridiculous. And I mean, it comes back to the whole, you know, that everybody's like, whatever you put, everybody always says, you know, whatever you put in front of your recovery, you're going to lose. And I mean, you prior prioritize your recovery, which is great, but um, you should be able to provide for your family. You should be able to do something that gives you meaning and purpose um, and you should, I mean, you're in a healthcare professional program too, and you should be able to lean on them as well. And the fact is if the healthcare, you know, professional program is really interested in health and wellness of providers, they should be investing in this. They should be funding, you know, therapists and groups. And, and as we know, being in these programs, you have to pay for your own, um, treatment. 
right? And I think these programs do a better job if you still have your license and you're still practicing, right? They, they, clearly, that's better because you have your, you know, your meaning and purpose and your career is intact. And, you know, even if, you know, it's been of a bumpy ride, but you're working in your, you know, chosen field, the thing that you've been working towards for years and years. Um, and so, and, and financially you're doing, you know, quite well and it's much easier to afford that stuff. But for somebody like sitting on the sidelines, waiting to get their license back or fighting, to get their license back, it is, you know, insurmount almost insurmountable hurdle. Not that it doesn't happen, not that it can't be done, but it's just far more challenging. And the system's not designed for that because, you know, it, it's not, it's about. I mean, like we say all the time, it's about the illusion of protecting the public and the health and wellness because that's not what they're really doing, right? And we all know that. Right. Um, it's it's really the you know, it's it's it's. But we could, Sean. Like the thing we is, could, we, we could we, like. I've said this a million times too. Like we have a great foundation uh, in PHPs and uh, other professional monitoring programs. There's a great, you mean we have a great sort of structure to work around and make some changes to, and uh, you know, and if we would add some flexibility, going back to the tailored recovery plans, if we had a lot of flexibility with individuals, just think about how much better it would be for patients out there. Uh, yeah, and... it could be infinitely better. The problem is these programs, they are not willing to speak openly and provide data about what they're doing, how they're doing, what their real success rates are, what their challenges are. They are operating in a vacuum with no oversight. Most medical boards take their word as, you know, the word of God. Um, without it, you know, and, and so we have no idea. Maybe they are doing a great job. They claim to be doing a great job, but we know that, that that's not necessarily true, and there's a lot of selection bias and other issues. Um, but um, the fact is we, we don't know, and if they really wanted to be better, they would open the door. There would be transparency, right? Because um, if you want to be better, you're transparent and you, you know, like, come in, tell us how we can do this better. You know, we're having challenges with, you know, this group, you know, is giving us challenges. Can we do this? Like they should be sharing information and every state professional monitoring program, they're different. They have different requirements. You know, some have PETH testing, some don't, some do X amount of urines a week, some do less, some do more, you know, some require you to go to groups, some don't. Um, it's ridiculous. There's no standardization. Nobody's talking about it. You have, you know, a centralized, um, you know, more federal, you know, group of, of health monitoring programs um, that exists. I'm not sure exactly what they do. They talk about best practices. I don't really know where those are from. Um, like we know, you know, X amount of 12-step meetings a week is apparently the magic number, you know, four like is three too little is five too many like i i mean it's just there's so many arbitrary things um and it's you know and i know like you know historically it was to do good right and and i think historically way back in the day it was a lot more about health and wellness now it's about protecting the board and protecting the PHP and protecting hospitals, you know, because if something goes wrong, they can say, oh, look, you know, his urines, you know, 
you know, he didn't have any positive urines for X amount of years. He went to X amount of groups, you know, he did what he was supposed to do. So he's safe. But um, there's just, there's so much, you know. But this so also, I mean, I think the, the, what I just went through, what we just talked about, I think also factors into that. Okay, so you've got whatever the number is, three years, five years in this monitoring program. You have three years of negative drug screens. You've got three years or five years of um, 12-step attendance three times a week, four times a week, right? You're unleashed from this thing. You're declared, okay, you're safe to go. And then you go on to do whatever. But that doesn't account. Like I could have been through this program. I could have been practicing if I wasn't aware of my life circumstances, if I wasn't aware of how that would impact my mental health and, you know, how that may um, cause a resurgence of symptoms for me, uh, mental health symptoms that I would seek. Because it, 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 this, this, this wasn't about an exacerbation of my opioid use disorder history. As far as I'm concerned, I don't have symptoms. I don't fit the diagnostic criteria to have an opioid use disorder anymore. I am recovered from an opioid use disorder. But this stuff brought up symptoms that were mental health symptoms, were, were symptoms much more of depression. The way that I have historically treated depression for myself, because I'm not usually aware that I'm depressed, has been through the use of opioids and other medications to help manage the symptoms of depression. And I think that's a really clear distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't... You know, the reason that... that finding drugs popped into my head again was because I've learned over repeated past sessions of drug use that they're really good about fixing when I feel this way. You know what I mean? And, and so it, did, it doesn't mean that I would have, yeah, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that I would have gone down that whole path again. Yeah. But my, my, they work. My, my, they work. I guess my overall point about this was that you could have someone who does well in these programs for five years, and then five years right. later, something could change in their life that they're going to use drugs again, mm-hmm. and these programs have done nothing at all to Correct. help them identify that and create some type of plan to intervene because you're so busy jumping through hoops to get your license back that I I am no better that you potentially could be, you could actually be worse off, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, completing, successfully completing or graduating from one of these programs because you've done nothing to work on the really, the true underlying reason why you may have used a substance in the first place. Mm-hmm. And five years is supposed to be the magic number. Five years, you know, your chances of, you know, a recurrence of use are supposed to go down. Well, I ruined that. Um, dramatically. Well, yeah, I mean, you just said you had been, you know, abstinent or in recovery for five years. Like, it's a lifelong process. But the other thing that how you were saying, you feel like you're recovered and... I mean, that begs the question, is it a disease, right? Or is it a learning disorder? And like, we've talked about that. Sure. And I think it depends on the person and individual. Um, there's no, that's the thing about this is there's no absolutes. Right. It, there are just yeah. no absolutes. Everybody's but, different. And- however, however, the entire PHP system is designed around the idea that I have a, a chronic relapsing brain disorder. And so that does factor into policy that factors into all the requirements that i have to right. do because that's the understanding yeah i don't personally subscribe to other believe that and, uh, yeah and a chronic relapsing brain disorder that we treat for five years and then we stop treating 
Right. So <laughs> right, and then you're you're fine. Right. You're so good. It, you know, in reality, we're going to certify you to you know to do whatever you want to do. Yeah, like, I mean, it, so it, the the brain disease model would actually dictate that these programs should monitor me for life. Right. As as if as if drug screens and twelve step meetings are going to give you any type of objective information about Nothing. how I'm doing. Zero. Right. Yeah. yeah it's asinine. <laughs> so it's i mean but but like you said earlier it is a good foundation and we do need some kind of system but it can be dramatically improved but that starts with speaking openly and honestly about what is going on right um who's running these programs what are they doing what i mean we have we have no idea and we know you know, looking at some other states' data that a lot of the relationships with treatment centers and providers are, you know, um, questionable at best. You know, there's a lot of relationships that may not be totally above board. And so it's a, it's a system that needs to be overhauled and improved. And, um, sure. and there's many, many different issues. But um, you know, in terms of relapsing or recurrence of use, like, um, it is about having insight and it's about being connected. I mean, the one thing that I found really helpful with, you know, my health program was the work in groups and working with other, um, professionals that were struggling with these things. Cause I, I mean, there are some unique things that we go through and and challenges and even being exposed like in your job um you were exposed to people doing illicit drugs but in the hospital you're exposed to you know illicit drugs right and how you manage that and um you know those can be interesting challenges and unique things and then you know the stress that we talk about and compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma trauma and all you know a whole host of things that are unique to providers that are that are like doing this work day in and day out and you know these programs at least my program you know i was connected with a good group of people and some of the you know professional health professional meetings um, can be very helpful, but, but those you're really doing independently, you know, like it's and that, not... that, yeah, but that's only if that, if you find that stuff helpful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that was for me, I'm yeah. talking about myself, yeah. you know, some people go in and they're like, this is useless. I, well, I does nothing because... for me. It makes me more anxious. And so they, you know, they should have a different plan. Right. And so like for me, the standard cookie cutter plan worked you know i guess i mean i was already a year and a year and a half into recovery before i even joined joined the program sure so i was pretty stable so you know i did what they told me and some of most of it was helpful um you know some of it was useless um but i did it you know because because it's what i had to do but um i knew i know many people um now and i knew many people that didn't find it helpful at all, you yeah. know, and um, and then some of the strategies were downright. I'm not even sure how they were legal, like you know, ma- mandated naltrexone injections and stuff like this. That um, nobody has any business <laughs> dictating yeah. that kind of thing. But um, it's just you know, it varies on the person. Yeah. It just comes back to I the same mean... thing we were saying. It's got to be you know tailor made. Like it's every everybody you know finds value in the way they find value and 
And, and the worst case scenario is that it's dangerous, that it pushes people out the door, you know, and you hear stories all the time of somebody who committed suicide or yeah. somebody who is now using again or, you know, something, you know, something awful happened, you know, and, and that's, that's just not, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, of course not. I just mean in terms of like those support groups and meetings, I, I find them very similar to like social media. <coughs> So for me, so if I would put on Twitter, hey, I'm actually struggling with an urge to use and put that out there, I'm sure the advice that I would have gotten would be very standard things that you would hear people, you know what I mean, to do, because that's what we've been told over and over again, that I don't find helpful. What I really need is someone who really understands me and who actually listens to me and believes me when I say... I understand myself really well. These are the things that have not worked. These are the things that I'm trying to work through. Help me work through these things here. And that's really rare to find. And I think this is also where a highly trained peer specialist would Mm -hmm. work because you're working intimately with a person for a long time. And I feel like, like I said, going into a support group and throwing this out there, you're going to get a lot of advice from people who don't know you and don't know the subtleties and the complexities mm-hmm. of your personality. Like, I could talk to you about issues. I could talk to Trish about issues that I'm going through because you're my friend. She's my mm-hmm. spouse. You guys understand me well, but you also listen to me when I give you information about myself that I know about yeah. myself to help me interpret. You're the expert on you. Right, but, but we don't but we don't treat that that <laughs> no, way, right? right. And yeah. peers, I mean, peer support, I think, is one of the most powerful um, and critical aspects to any of this. I mean, honestly, like I, I would like meetings are hit or miss. You know, I like an occasional meeting, but I think that's more important. You know, meeting with a peer, speaking with a peer on the phone, whatever it is like that. Somebody who gets to know you, understands you, values you, um, because the systems themselves in general are not really valuing you like they are just systems right to design to do something that's not um not unique to you right it's just lining you know lining the dominoes up for whoever's you know um invested in that system you know whether it's you know the medical board or nursing board or whoever it is um and so peers i mean Peers, I think, are vital. Peers have helped me immensely. Um, I provide peer support to other people. Um, I, I think it's the magic. I think it's like the future um, to recovery. Um, far more important than, you know, some of these treatment organizations. Uh, far more important than going to 12-step meetings and not... Some people love 12-step meetings. It's great. I, you know... You know, I find them helpful um, sometimes, but, um, you know, having a prescribed number of 12 Don't make me go, though. No, I know, no. That's the difference. Well, I know you, and I know that's, and and that's not for you. So, like, yeah, I mean, you working with a peer, um, you know, or, you know, involved in some of your hobbies and connected to other people in other ways, that's recovery, too. Well, and and I say that, well, and, and I say... That don't make me gun and I know that it sounds like I may be really hard on 12 steps but uh, that's not my point so my point is a support group is predicated on the idea that it's voluntary 
And so for the benefit of everyone else who AA works tremendously for, don't force people to go who don't find it helpful. Because I have to work really hard. Like I generally stay very quiet in the meetings because I don't want to ruin the integrity of the group or the unity of the group just because I'm pissed off because I have to be there. But that's really no benefit to me. You mean, I, I have... And that's you I, respecting I, well, the group because the group have, has value for other people. Yeah, so. I have huge respect for, yeah. for 12-step, for huge respect because <clears throat> I know hundreds of people whose lives have been saved by 12-step fellowships, and I would never, ever want to disrupt that. But I have a massive problem with me being mandated to go to something that I tell people, that I tell the Board of Nursing regular, well, I tell the monitoring agency regularly, this is detrimental to my recovery. Why do I have to keep going to this thing? I am over two years into recovery. I am very stable in my recovery. Everything that I do in my life reflects my stability. Mm -hmm. I should not be mandated to go to a support group that I have never found supportive for me personally. And that's not my fault. And that's not AA's fault. And you're not alone. Whether people admit it or not. I mean, you know, I I would say it's probably 50-50 in my experience. You know, half the people I've encountered are like, yeah, I find value and I, and I go. And the other half are like, it's ridiculous. I'm on my phone. I tune out when I'm there. Yeah. I put my headphones on. I mean, it's, you know, it's hit or miss. But it's it comes back to the same philosophy that it's it's not, you know, it should be about the person, you know, the individual and not about the system. And, and especially when you don't have evidence that it works, right? Uh, many of these programs will say, yeah, you know, like we have evidence that this works, that, you know, four meetings a week is the right number. And, you know, our people are successful. Well, are they successful because of the meetings? Um, I mean, I'd be willing. Yeah. I, that's up for <laughs> that's up yeah, for I mean, debate. Back to the Some whole, people. Yes. They what may does be success a res- mean? And I mean, I think and what is success for me personally, me using drugs or not using drugs has absolutely zero to do with recovery for me right um me too and what i mean by that i mean i don't mean that i'm gonna go use after this in you know this this episode because that's that's not my plan but my point is that again we, if we frame recovery around drug use we're missing the boat because going back to the whole point of talking today was about recovery has to do primarily with purpose in life and overall happiness and wellness and what can we do to foster that in an individual And I don't think what we've historically done with drug treatment and how we talk about relapse prevention does a whole lot of good because we're framing it around the use of a substance, not framing it around what makes you happy in your life. That's like all our drug policy. Yeah. It's it's always about drug policy. It's it's, it's treatment. It's it's, it's our entire mindset. Yeah, our entire mindset. It's about the substance. And the thing is, it's not about the substance at all. It has nothing to do with the substance. Right. <laughs> they're they're right. just you know, but everything we do, whether it's prevention, education, treatment, um, people that say they're harm reductionists, like it's about the substance. It's about the substance. It's about the substance. It has nothing to do with the substance, right? Yeah. But it's our attitudes towards these substances, and because you're using this substance or you use that substance that makes you this kind of human being that we don't value or don't like or criminalize right and that's for lack of a better you know term it's bullshit you know it's bullshit and we got it we got it wrong you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so i guess that's probably a good spot to start wrapping up it's yes, bullshit <laughs> yeah it is bullshit and it needs to change 
Um, and I think we're making change, but we have a long way to go. I, you know, the more I do this work, the more I realize, like, every corner you turn, um, there are barriers and obstacles and stigma and discrimination and criminalization and judgment. And, like, it's just, you know, we need a radical shift. Um, and it's going to take time. So, uh good news is we have a lot of work to do the good news and the bad news yeah. is is there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of great people in every facet of the areas that we've been talking about that are doing amazing work um, from criminal justice to public health and harm reduction and in the medical system um, there are but it's like you know our systems have been have been designed to do harm to people who use drugs you know sure. and communities where drug use is rampant um, and that needs to change, but it starts with us. So, yeah. yeah. I agree. And I, I just, I thought this was a really cool, I don't know. I, I just, I really did want to spend time talking about this, like to capture this in the moment. I mean, cause this is just a couple days ago that all this sort of really, um, reached the boiling point and a decision point to leave this job and to make big adjustments in life. And, I find that not many of us talk about it in the moment when no. we're struggling. And so I thought it was really cool to capture because I'm sure if I would, were to talk to you about this in a couple of weeks, I might have, I might be speaking about it differently than right now as I'm still going through and still processing through this. I'm on the, the downside. I mean, since making the decision to leave and leaving my job, I have, it was almost like a, I hate to use it, but yeah, the weight was lifted off my shoulders. I feel so much better without that. that and from my perspective, you, you're clearly better and you've got you know some doors that are opening up to you that are going to lead to you know new directions that are really exciting right so yeah, sometimes true. we hang on to like what we know and where we are because you know of uncertainty but you can't you have to let go to move on yeah you know it's um and you can't really keep one foot you know, in and have one foot on dry land and get anywhere. Like yeah. you're, you're stuck, you're still stuck. So, um, but that takes like, you know, courage and value, like you're valuing your health, mm -hmm. right. And your recovery, which is a really good, th which is actually is an amazing sign, right? Because, you know, when we are struggling or we have a substance use disorder frequently, you know, we have so much shame and anger that's directed inward and we don't really care, but, this to me, you know, shows, man, you value yourself, you value, you know, your career, you value the idea of having meaning and purpose in your life. And if you're not getting it where you're at, you know, and you gave it, you know, you gave it a good try. And I know you, you know, communicated that to, to your organization. Um, and you're like, okay, well, it's not working out. And now I'm going to move on and move in a different direction. And that's like, that's, that's pretty amazing and pretty exciting to me from my perspective. Yeah, it was different being, I didn't really see it that all. I mean, it was, I mean, it's so much, it's so much different, the perspective of, like, from you and, and Trish, like, for me, it was. Well, we're not you. <laughs> we're no, no, standing outside, no, no, right? That's true. But I just, I don't know, I really thought it would be really cool. And I just, I hope that this offers something to the discussion, like, in the moment to talk about this, that, one, we, we still struggle, right? That things are still going to happen in your life. And how, you know, how do we move through that? in a productive way and survive and and that's life and recovery 
Yeah. Right. It's that graph, you know, of recovery with that squiggly line sure. going all over the place. Like recovery is not a straight line. Life isn't a straight line. Yeah. You know, stuff, you know, this is normal stuff. You know, I mean, we're having a real conversation about it, but mm -hmm. this is life. Right. And yeah. recovery. It was just neat to take that little slice and dissect it. <clears throat> of like, okay, here's this little thing, this little blip. Like, let's cut it down yeah. and see what's in Was there. Was it so little? <laughs> no, I mean, but I mean, I mean, know. it was little, but yeah. it but it had a big impact on sure, you, yeah. right? Like even yeah. earlier when you were saying, "Oh, that subtle shift." Well, it wasn't that subtle for you, right? right. And maybe you know, in the organization you're in, they're like, "Oh, we're going to move Bill here." It's not going to be a big deal. He's going to be doing a lot of the same stuff. Not exactly different clients, yeah. but we'll slide him over here. It won't be a big deal to you. That was a massive deal. That like yeah. like that changed everything. Yeah, for you, right? It did. And and so you know, at first you may have been like, oh, okay, you know, this isn't going to be that bad. And within a few days, you know, you're depressed. You're not sleeping. Your wife's saying you're lashing out more. Like, yeah, like I get it. I mean, it's you know, but yeah. you're a human being. Yeah. Right? You're, you, we're all human yeah. beings. You know, that's not like an unreasonable, like that's a normal reaction, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, if maybe if you did nothing, that would be abnormal, you know? And you start thinking about acting out, you know, in very mm -hmm. unhealthy ways, like that would not have been healthy. This, to me, is a lot healthier, you know? Yeah. So. No. no, I mean, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess, th thanks for good listening. Place to stop. You know, yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. good. And, no, I just I hope this offers something to somebody. It was fun to talk about. And, uh, you know, yeah, we hope that if you're listening to this and you're struggling or you're going through the same thing or trying to figure out for yourself what the hell does a relapse prevention plan look like, um, we're with you. <laughs> we're trying to figure that out ourselves, too. And hopefully this offered something of value to you that might prevent you from going down a road that you don't want to go down. Great, great spot to stop. All right, see you next time. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at one 800 662 4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.